Welcome to Open Door Talks, a podcast series for independent musicians on how to navigate the music industry. I'm your host, Lex Luca, a music producer and DJ from London. I'll be talking to your favorite music makers about their journeys to success. Expect to hear a whole host of tips and tricks from seasoned professionals to help you move forward with your music. Follow Open Door Talks on your favorite podcast platform and head to opendoortalks.com for more information and resources. Hello and welcome to Open Door Talks, your guide on how to elevate your music. My name is Lex Luca. Thank you so much for tuning in. This week, we welcome Canadian DJ and producer Sydney Blue. Sydney has forged a really impressive career over the last 20 years. She's worked herself up from DJing on her local after-hours scene to touring all around the world. She taught herself how to make music and has gone on to release her tracks on some of the key labels, including Knee Deep in Sound, Elro, Viva and Mousetrap Records. She also has her own label and she runs the legendary Blue Party series. And most recently, she set up Change the Beat, which is a platform to increase the number of female, trans and non-binary producers. Seriously, Sydney's done a lot and this one is full of wisdom for you guys. We get into her creative practices and rituals, her music making process and her favourite plugins. We also discuss how she handles rejection rebranding yourself when you want to change your sound and loads, loads more. Let's dive right in. So here we have Sydney Blue. How are you doing? I'm great. Where do we find you today? I'm in Toronto, Canada, where I live. Tell us something that's happening in your music career right now that you're excited about. I am really excited about the music that I have coming out that I have been producing um, I think I'm probably really like in my own personal artist career. That's probably the thing that I'm most excited about is the music that I'm producing. Um, I've got a lot of upcoming records that have been signed to some pretty cool labels, um, and are coming out over the next little while, uh, into 2024. I have, uh, stuff that I'm shopping right now that I'm really proud of that I think will probably get signed by some strong labels and I'm waiting for answers, but I'm excited about. Um, yeah, I love making music. So I'm excited for all the stuff coming up. I'm excited also about the stuff I released earlier this year. Great. So we're going to get into those releases and jump into your creative processes, how you make your music and everything else and explore all of the amazing stuff you're up to because you are certainly a busy lady (laughs) and I'd like to first go back and just find out what were your experiences and influences of music growing up well I basically my my first influences were probably from a kid I was really into all different kinds of music and I was really obsessive about it. I had my own little radio show broadcasted to no one when I was a little kid. So I've always been really into showcasing music. It's one of my favorite things to do, share music with others. I literally think I'm put on this earth to share music with others, whether it's my own or other people's music. So I was also into playing instruments I played the piano um, and I danced um, like 
in dance class and, and I was a cheerleader and like, I was always choreographing our routines. And that's kind of when I got into electronic music was through choreographing and dance. And then when I graduated from university, I went to college in a city called Ottawa, which is actually the capital of Canada. And that's where I went to my first like rave type nightclub. And I discovered a DJ that was playing there that was awesome. And the rest is history. Like I discovered the rave scene. It was probably 1998. So yeah, I I was DJing within two years of that that discovery. So how did you go from yeah discovering music to becoming a DJ? I was just really obsessed with it. I think to the point where I realized that I was more obsessed with it than most people, you know, like when you're a person that can just take or leave it and can go to a club, enjoy it and then go home and not think about it. That's one thing. But when you go to the club and then you go home and you're looking up all the songs that you heard at the club and you're obsessing over every little song or beat or, you know, uh, baseline. I think that that shows that you have something inside you that's, a, you know, that could potentially, you know, make yourself do what uh, the other DJs were doing. I That's kind of how I knew that I wanted to do it was because I was like, I'm way more obsessed with this than most people I know. And, uh, I knew just for that reason alone that I probably should give it a shot, you know? So then I, I, when I moved to Toronto, it was the year 2000 and I decided to buy turntables and I bought some vinyl and I just started teaching myself how to mix. Um, I had some tips from a couple of people that knew how to do it too. Um, but basically I taught myself in my bedroom and I de- uh, would buy records every Saturday and I started getting little gigs around the city and started playing around different nightclubs. I was pretty much the only girl. There was a couple other girls in the city, but it was very, very rare to see very many female DJs back then. So it was cool. Because I was really inspired, and yeah, I, from that inspiration, I bought some turntables and started my career. There was no looking back. Who were the other artists that you were inspired by, and what was it about them that inspired you? Some of the DJs that I saw first, I used to go to a club called Atomic in Ottawa. That That's the club that I walked into and was like, whoa, everyone would go there every Saturday night. And... Um, It was cool because some of the best DJs in the world came through this club. And uh, so I got to see so many different artists that were like so inspiring to me um, and made me want to do it. One of them was Roger Sanchez. Um, Another one, uh, Joski. He was probably, I think, in the first three artists that I saw at this club. Same with Roger Sanchez. Danny Teneglia was another one. I'd say Danny Teneglia was, I was really, really interested in Danny Teneglia because he played this like dark hypnotic sound. It was really popular at the time coming out of New York. And I think that that really influenced my sound a lot. I mean, I always liked house music and I always liked different kinds of electronic music, but Danny Teneglia probably played my favorite kind, which was like dark hypnotic 
tech house, house music, whatnot. So, um, yeah, I think that he was probably one of my biggest inspirations back then. I can certainly hear that in your music. It certainly has a dark and hypnotic element to it. So I can really hear that now that you say it. Yeah. Good. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Very cool. So what happened next? What was your, what was the next step after you started to, to get some local gigs? I was a local DJ in Toronto for a long time before I graduated into the touring thing. I, I basically did it from the year 2000 until 2008. It was a long time that I did that. I played every club around the city. Some of them were massive nightclubs. Like there was this club called the government. It held like 10,000 people. I had my own room. I would play on Saturday nights from four to 6 AM. Like every, every Saturday I was the resident. Um, but I started producing music, I'd say probably in the middle of all of this, I'd say probably that was 2005. And when I started making music, I, I mean, it's such a learning curve for me because I didn't even know how to use a computer, you know? So I spent maybe four years learning. And then I finally, like when I met dead mouse around 2008, he really helped me move what I was doing to Ableton live because I was on Cubase prior to that. And I wasn't that great at Cubase to be honest. <laughs> and the music I had made up until that point was okay. But as soon as I discovered Ableton live, things really changed for me. I just became so much easier to make music with that program. So um, I definitely think Ableton live is the most user-friendly DAW. So I am, um, yeah, I learned how to use Ableton and I started probably making the best records that I have made at that point, um, probably around 2008. I got signed to Mousetrap and that was around the same time, 2008, signed two records. And then from there, I started my own record label after that and I started to tour and I got signed to an agency and I got a manager and all that. That was around all around the same time, 2008. And it all had to do with the records that I had on Mousetrap because they did so well on Beatport. At that time, Beatport was so important. Mm. I'm interested. What did you learn from Dead Mouse? One of the biggest things he taught me was to be self-sufficient. And not to rely so much on other people and to try to make it vice versa. He really always knew his value. And so, and also branding was another thing that was really inspiring to me because he had such a strong brand. So from watching him with his brand, I created my brand, which was like Blue Music, and I started an event series called the blue party that went for a long time. I threw these parties up until 2019. Um, well, 2020 was when I think I threw my last blue party and like I did this. Yeah. From 2008 to 2020. And I, I threw these parties all over the world. I had a 10 year streak of doing the showcases at Miami music week. So 
And then I had my own record label and I also had my own radio show. And it was like blue radio, the blue party, blue music. So, and I was really, you know, I think his, his management, cause I was with their met his management at the time. They helped me get my first uh, logo and my first branding and everything. And I really wanted to make everything in regards to my brand, like be a reflection of me and who I was and what I stood for. And uh, I think that that was probably the thing that I was the most inspired by him about. But also, yeah, he really taught me how to be self-sufficient. He knew that people relied on him and it wasn't the other way around. So that's another reason why I started my own record label. I wasn't relying on, you know, other record labels to sign my music. I started releasing my own music immediately after um, my releases on Mousetrap. I think that there's you could do a balance though like in regards to obviously the the landscape of the industry has changed so much since then like it's important to be on different record labels now and have used their outreach and their um visibility for yourself i think obviously it's really helpful to be on a big record label so um it's important to do that and i don't like discredit that at all. It's, it's just, I do definitely think that having your own identity and your own brand is important. So did that identity come quite easily for you? Or is it something you had to really think about? Because I love the synergy of your branding. Did that come easy for you? Or was that something that you had to work on? I think it came easy because at the end of the day, it was just everything is an extension of me. That's the way I always looked at it. Um, if I'm like, there was a a short period of time where I was playing a little bit more commercial stuff, I think because like when the EDM boom happened, I had just moved to Miami and there was so much pressure to play like a little bit more commercial during that time. And to be honest, like I regretted it for so long after I was like very, like, I was very, um, set on going back to the underground after only a couple years of, you know, that EDM boom. I didn't, and I never really considered myself to have ever played EDM. You know, I never did that. It was just the fact that I was living in Miami at the time where that sound was thriving as was Los Angeles and Vegas at that time. So I basically kind of went along with the trends the best I could playing music that I liked, but also sort of trying to conform to what they wanted from me. And then I think by 2013, I said, forget this. I can't do this anymore. I was just like, no, I'm going to go back to what I want to play, which is more deep hypnotic underground stuff. I got really known playing in after hours in Toronto. So like for years I was like the, the after hours DJ. So the EDM boom always disgusted me. I was so offended by it. And the most obnoxious people were coming out of that world. So I was really happy to finally just say, I don't want anything to do with this. I'm going to go back to doing my own underground thing and just do what I want to do. So it was, a, it was actually a challenge to also do that because when you're changing your identity a little bit and changing your sound, people sometimes don't always jump on board and you have to change people's perspe- perceptions of you. So, yeah, so that was a little bit of a challenge for me. Um, But I had always done stuff for years that was more underground. So, yeah, that was my next question, which was, yeah, what were the challenges involved in going from that relatively mainstream slash EDM sound back to the more underground after hours vibe? 
Yeah, it wasn't that easy. <laughs> I wouldn't say that people were like super welcoming from the underground world. Also, I've gone through so many different phases of this industry, basically around 2000, when I was doing it, I'd say that was 2013, between 2013 to 2016. That's when I was trying to make that adjustment. And um, during those years, the underground people were like, we're very underground. And then there was no middle. And then the EDM people were the you know, commercial EDM people. So it was just like two different worlds. Now there's a lot of overlap, tons of overlap. Um, and commercial music is like tech house. So it's like really, you know, like it's, it's all over the place now. But at that time, I, I don't think I was super welcomed into the underground world. People kind of looked at me as a more commercial artist because of being of the connection to Dead Mouse and the connection to, um, playing more commercial clubs in Miami, Vegas, and Los Angeles. But the way that I change people's perceptions of me is by releasing music on more underground labels, you know, like Hoss and Sadie Two's record label, Needy Been Sound. That was a big one for me. Um, Viva, Steve Lawler's record label. That was another one for me that was really good in changing uh, people's outlook. So ultimately, if you want to, if you want to do something like that, like if you want to totally do a 180, then the best thing to do is to start making music around the sound that you want people to know you for. Cause like just walking into a nightclub and playing it is, is one thing it's, it, you really need to like make music and be associated with those record labels. And I think that that's definitely how people's perceptions changed. Yeah, that's great. You've literally answered the next question. So I'll, I'll move on. I'd love to get into your creative process. Can you walk us through your music production process, like step-by-step? Step? How do you typically go from crafting a track from start to developing it into a finished uh, tune? I, it's very, very messy. I mean, honestly, I start by just arranging the track from the beginning. I, I start with a four bar loop, maybe. Uh, I loop it sometimes for maybe, or maybe more than four bar loop, like maybe like uh, a nine bar loop, you know, and I just added and I mute things and I basically add in sounds, samples, play some riffs and I listen to how it all goes until probably I have about 20 or more tracks going at once. It's a mess. Um, I don't usually do the other view. Um, I can't, there's the arrange view and what's the other side session, the session view. I don't really, I don't really use the session view ever. Um, I just arrange um, what I, but I start the arrange view by doing like a, a loop. And like I said, I mute the sounds and I, I see how it all kind of goes together and then I move everything to the right. <laughs> and then I start, I arrange it really, really quickly. And I use the top left, um, side of Ableton where it has the different colors and the favorite sounds. And I think that that is the best way to make records is have your automated like effects, sounds, favorite kick drums. So you don't have to make it complicated and find a new kick or a new uh, set of drums every single time. Um, 
My favorite plugins are Native Instruments Contact. I love the Diva. I love the Repro one. I use the Repro mm, one yeah, that's by Yuhei all the time. Uh, yeah, and um, I've been using a lot Analog Lab a lot by Arturia. I don't really. I just recently got Spire again. Like I brought back brought that old pu- plugin back into the mix. Um, and those are the ones I use the most. That's basically it. I'm trying to think if I use anything else. I love, um, portal. I love, uh, Tantra to, you know, mix up my sounds and make them sound hypnotic. Uh, cable guys, shaper box. Those are my favorite plugins. Yeah. And that's how I make my music. <laughs> I basically, um, amazing. Yeah. And, and, and it's really simple and I'll for vocals. If I'm going to get a vocal, I'll sometimes hit up some friends, you know, that do spoken word stuff. I don't do a lot of singing, but I actually just did a couple singing records this year, um, that I'm really excited about, but spoken, I do mostly spoken word if I'm doing vocals, but yeah. And, uh, that's it. I love making music though. I do. It's my favorite thing to do. Yeah. I'm with you on that one. Do you have any specific habits or rituals that you, you do is, you know, do you make music every day or do you need to go to the studio or some people like to make music for really short bursts. Some people like to spend all day in the studio. How is it for you? I wish I had more time. I really have, don't have any, a lot of time anymore um, because of the fact that I'm so busy with so many other projects going on. It's really, really challenging for me to make music during the week. I try, like I have this weekend off and I'm going to try to start like two projects. And you know what? I do everything really sporadically. Like I will not spend eight hours in the studio. I just can't, I will start a project and then I'll just keep it open. And then I'll work on it for like a half an hour today, a half an hour later today, another half an hour tomorrow. And like, that's basically how I keep going until the project seems to be almost done. Um, it might take four or five days, and then basically I'll take the project and I'll bring it to a studio with the stems and I'll mix it down. And that happens like after I've done everything, like I'll lay in everything. The song will be complete, like with effects and everything like that. Um, I just bring the stems to have it mixed down in a proper studio because I'm just doing it here in my little apartment when I'm making it. What advice would you give to people who are just starting out on their music production journey? Uh, YouTube is a great resource. You can learn so much from YouTube. Um, even during the pandemic, I learned and I watched tons of tons of tutorials on music production. So I would highly recommend, you know, following some really great channels that you follow the, the sound that you are making also maybe have some sort of a specific sound that you're going for and understand how those records are made. Do you work with reference tracks? I definitely use reference tracks. It's important to use reference tracks because if you, um, use them 
I put it right at the top of my project. Um, you can look at that for sound quality. You can look at that for the arrangement is actually something I use it for too. Um, you can also, yes, go to specific YouTube channels that are really good. Some of the ones that I love the most are Underdog. I don't know if you've ever heard of Underdog. I have, yeah. It's called Underdog Music School. His name's Oscar. Yeah, Dutch Dutch Music School, aren't they? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Oh my goodness. What a great, what a great school. Um, and, uh, so I watch all of that guy's YouTube videos. I've learned a lot of little cool tricks, especially with making techno. Um, also, uh, there's another one. I can't remember the name of it, but, oh, Dilby. He's such a great friend of mine. Dilby. Yeah. He's cool. Based out of New Zealand, right? Yeah, he's great. I actually just finished a track with him. He's a really good guy. Uh, but his videos are great. I've actually learned a lot from his videos as well. Yeah, so I would highly recommend either of those two channels. But there's more, too. There's a couple more. Uh, and I can't think of them off the top of my head. <laughs> but if you're looking up, like, a sound, like, like let's say you want to make Tech House, like they will say in a lot of these videos, like how to make tech house, like, and then you can just go through and search the videos online, you know? Yeah. The internet's just such an incredible resource for making music. It's important to not get too lost. Sometimes you yeah. can dig a bit too deep and not always get the best information, but, um, yeah, but using that information and then incorporating it into your own sound is, is probably the best approach. Yeah. Yeah. So you just mentioned Dilby and you've just done a track with him. Can you tell me about some of the other exciting collaboration projects that you've been involved in? Well, earlier this year, I released an EP with Shelly Johansson, who's an amazing, uh, talented techno producer from Canada. We collaborated on Drum Code's label, True Soul, and that came out in July. Um, I have an EP coming out with Jenner, who is a... Um, melodic house DJ and producer here from Toronto. We have a collaboration EP coming out on Katermuka, uh, a record label out of, out of Berlin. Um, I have a really cool release that I just finished with Dilby and an artist named Starving It Full. It's not signed yet, but we have sent it to our, our favorite record label that we want for it. So we're waiting for that. Um, I also collaborate sometimes with an artist named Dantes. He is from Inner City and uh, with the Kevin Saunderson. And uh, yeah, he's a really talented artist. And so I collaborate with him sometimes. And we have a release coming out on um, Hishibei. Uh, with an artist named Demetrius. So that just got signed recently. No release date just yet. Yeah, I did a really cool remix for an electronic band called Odonis Odonis earlier this year called More. Really cool thing. Really cool track um, that I was really excited about. <sighs> yeah, so lots of collaborations, lots of solo stuff too. In terms of those collaborations, there's a real mix of different names. Starving It Full is from Azari and Third, right? And yeah, Dilby and um, Dantes, right? Dantes. Dantes, sorry. Kevin's son, right? Yeah. How do you choose your collaborations and how do you get the best out of them? 
It's really random. Like the Dantes collaboration is really random. You never would really think that we would be collaborating. Like how do we even know each other? Um, and it's, it's interesting. I booked his dad to play one of my blue parties back in 2015. And he was there hanging out with his brother, Damari, the Saunderson brothers. And it was fun. Like we had a blast and it was funny because I was just like waiting like on the side, you know, watching his dad play and he was rocking it out, killing it. And uh, Dantes was like, we should collaborate on some music. And I was like, sure, why not? And so somehow from that point on, we started exchanging parts and he usually starts the project and I'll, I'll finish it. And it's fun. Like, I mean, we, he always sends me like really good stuff, you know, it's stuff that I can work with. So, um, we did a track called Inspirato back in 2017, maybe, um, or 16. I'm not sure. Then after that, um, we, collaborated during the pandemic on an EP that ended up coming out on Josh Butler's label. And that was called waiting for you. And then there was a song, another song called control, I think. And then I ran into him at Detroit's movement festival this past year. And he was like, Hey, um, you know, like let's do something again. And I'm like, hell yeah, let's do something again. So there you go another another conversation next you know he's, we're sending each other parts um he that's basically how it came about he said he sent me a really cool project and uh and uh i worked on it this summer and got a vocalist to do a, a vocal over it and got signed to hishi they earlier this week so we're pretty excited about it that's super exciting how would you say that you get the best out of your collaboration sessions by being like open Cause you work with a different person every single time. So you need to like kind of melt into, I, I just like try to mesh with what they're doing and their vibe. You know, Shelly was a totally different situation. She was a lot more technical and she wanted to like be involved, like on the collaboration until the, to the very end. And that that's totally fine with me too. Um, we did online sessions. It took us a lot longer to make the true soul EP. Um, with Dilby, I sent him the project, you know, a totally different scenario where like I had done something till almost the end. And then I sent him the project. Then I went and found my friend who is the vocalist for the track starving at full to do the vocals. And so it's just different every single time. There's no approach. There's just like, Hey, let's do this. Let's have fun with it. That's it. Sometimes I'll send, projects to people and they'll say hey do you want to do something together and I'll be like yeah sure and then I'll send them something and then I never hear anything <laughs> you know that that happens too um people sometimes bite off more than they can chew and I don't know why they don't follow through but or maybe the music that I sent them isn't a hundred percent on what they want to do so like it's probably you know a whole bunch of different reasons but there's no rhyme or reason to anything it's just if I'm feeling it and it seems like it's going to work, then it works on its own, you know? Obviously, being in the music industry, there's there's lots of rejections. There's lots, obviously lots of great times, but it, it, there are lots of rejections as well. How do you handle rejections and people saying no or not hearing back from people? 
I'm used to it at this point. <laughs> That's all. Um, I, I have to say that I don't think anyone ever loves rejection. Um, it's never something that I've ever enjoyed. It's probably something that's been one of the most challenging things for me to deal with. But at the same time, because they say, oh, it's not personal, but it's like, it is sort of personal. Like, I mean, they don't like something that I did, you know, so that's personal to me. Um, ultimately, it's what is not right for them, though. And that's, I think, what people mean when they say it's not personal. It's like what they are looking for. Um, not necessarily what you are doing as an artist. So some, sometimes music works for some people. Sometimes it doesn't work for others. Sometimes things don't make any sense either. You can do music for somebody who you think it's going to be perfect for the record label and it won't work at all. And then other times you can send something to somebody and they like it and it gets signed like that. So I feel like I have a lot more luck lately and getting signed to labels than I used to. I think that there was a little bit of a bias towards women in the production space for a long time. And I think that I probably got a lot of the brunt of that when I was shopping my records for a long time. Maybe my music wasn't up to par either. I really don't know. But it's hard to tell when the record labels are just all men and they're not signing any women at all and you're sending them tracks and you think your tracks sound similar to what the sound of the label is already. So I don't know, but it definitely has been discouraging in the past for me, but I feel like, I feel like I'm starting to get that starting to change. I, I definitely feel like I'm getting a lot more reception from record labels than I used to. Do you know where that might be? I think my music's gotten better. I definitely think my music's gotten better. Um, I probably, you know, if you keep working on stuff, <laughs> you keep striving to be better, you'll get better. So maybe I'm better also at making music specifically for the record label too, because that's what they want, right? They want their sound, not yours necessarily. Sometimes they'll be like, yeah, sure, we'll go for something unique. But for the most part, they want what they want. And it can be difficult to second guess that. The other thing that we all experience as artists is creative blocks. Sometimes it can be difficult to finish music. How do you overcome those moments? And is there anything that you do to look for inspiration? I basically try to finish everything I do. I try to. Anyways, because I just don't want to waste my time. I only have so much time in the in my life. And so to start a whole bunch of projects and not finish them, to me, would be the biggest waste of time. Um, if I'm going to work on something, it's like I lately, like this weekend, I've been asked to do like a B-side for a record label and an A-side. And like, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to finish these tracks. So I'm working on, I'm going to start two songs on the weekend and I'm going to eventually finish both of them. Like there's not going to be a question. Occasionally I have started stuff that has not potentially worked. And then I'm like, I'll just start from scratch. Um, but that rarely happens to be honest. Usually I'm like in a groove and I'm like, I'm loving this. 
and then I continue and I finish it. Like I just, I can't, I won't, I basically will work on a, on a track and like, until I'm really, really feeling it, it, when I'm in that loop at the beginning, adding sounds, like I won't start arranging it until I'm like loving every, a bunch of the layers, not every layer, but a bunch of the layers that I put into that loop. I know what it's going to sound like when it's like full on with all the sounds going at once, then I will arrange it. And usually that's like the, that's the sign that it'll be okay. And I can finish it because you know, you've got everything going at once and it's like, okay, this is what it's going to sound like now. So yeah, I try to finish everything. Probably one of the things that uh, contributes to your success to be able to finish music, finish all the music that you start, because there's many producers that I know that are stuck in the the 16 bar loop and they're also stuck in their bedrooms and they're not, you know, their tracks because they never finish it. Yeah. Um, But it doesn't get you anywhere. Yeah. That can be tough. What's the most challenging part of music production for you? Probably maybe synthesis. Like, I mean, I, I don't think that I'm, I still think I, I have a long way to go with using synthesizers and um, potentially uh, mixing things down in regards to that as well. You know, like you can, I don't even necessarily, I I, synthesis, I I love, but at the same time, you can always do better. Like there's so many, there's so many things that you can do to change the sound of what a synthesizer sounds like. Right. And, um, you know, it's easy to just put a preset on and not do anything to it. You know what I mean? Like, I think everybody has, can learn a lot about, um, you know, they're built the built-in synthesizers and in the Ableton DAW as well as like any plugins. So I, sometimes I feel like I could learn a lot more in regards to that. But the other thing is like the mix down. Like I sometimes feel like I could learn more about compression and uh, just doing things in a, in a mix down chain better. And I feel like it's a constant learning curve and I'll just always work on that, you know? I'd love just to take a moment to talk about your record label. What were the lessons that you learned by running your record label? And I get now that you release mainly your own music on your label, but I'd love to know what the lessons you learned from from running a record label are. Yeah, um, I basically learned the lesson that if you don't have the time and you don't have the team to don't do it at all. Um, I was releasing other people's music for a long time on the label. It became a ton of work and I was always spread thin doing it. I'm a lot of the time I wasn't doing it properly. So I think the, the biggest lesson that I learned was do it right or don't do it at all. I mean, that should be, you know, advice that you could give in general to anything. Um, but that was a big thing that I learned through running my own record label. I pivoted to just, you know, doing my own music through it, um, which has been actually great because I don't have to worry about doing statements and sending them to other people because I, I get paid for my own music. So it's great. Um, but that was the biggest lesson I learned from it. Like if you have people to help you, great. If you have the budget to pay somebody, great. If you have the time, great. I didn't have any of those things. So um, ultimately that's the, that's the biggest lesson from the, the label is don't do it if you're not going to do it right. <laughs> 
I think that's brilliant advice. Like you said, it's brilliant advice for a record label, but also brilliant advice for life in, in um, for life as well. Yeah. Your Blue Parties, they ran for 10 years, I believe. Uh, I'd love to hear about that. They became a you know huge event in Miami. What inspired you at the time to, to start the event and what were some of the highlights for you? Um, I started the event in 2008 when I had graduated from the whole mousetrap camp. Actually, no, I think I started the event in 2010. Now that I think about it, that was the first year we did our, our party. Was it 2009? It was, yeah, it was 2009 or 2010 and it was great. And, uh, I, it was all under the inspiration of doing, um, the mousetrap stuff, the branding. Like I said, I learned a lot from Dead Mouse in regards to branding. I started Blue Music immediately after I left Mousetrap. And I threw the Blue Party my very first year. I think we had booked Funk Agenda from Tool Room. Um, Olivier Giacomoto, Serge Devant played. Um, I can't remember who else played, but it was a great party. And um, then every year I did it after that. Um, Throwing this party was a lot of work. It was exhausting. And we had to deal with a lot of agents and uh, artists because we would book huge lineups of like five, sometimes six DJs. One year we did, I don't know, a 24 hour party or something like that. Um, I think some of our biggest artists that we booked were MK, Reba Starr, Stacey Pullen, Kevin Saunderson, Technasia play, Nathan Barato, Carlo Leo. We had some really good parties. They were really good. WAF played, um, Serge Devant, uh, Seb Zito. Yeah, they were really good parties, all of them. We did them all, all over Detroit, too. DJ Sneak played our Detroit one. Francesca Lombardo headlined one, too. Um, Toronto, threw them in Toronto. I did one in Phoenix, Arizona, not long ago with the Desert Hearts guys. But yeah, like I did them all over. Yeah, and... Um, in 2020, we were trying to put the showcase together for um, our 2020 showcase. It was going to be our 10-year anniversary. And then COVID-19 happened. And I was really exhausted from... I was really exhausted putting these showcases together for so long. Um, to be honest, I was really burnt out in general at that time. And so when 2020 happened and there was like a break, I was like okay, good. I need some rest. (laughs) So I was actually relieved. Um, And now that things have started back up again, I just didn't want to start throwing the party again right away because I wanted to get back on the road and started DJing on my own. Um, I'm not against doing another blue party. I think I've done one or two since the pandemic ended, but it's more important. I'm really focused. I'm really focusing on my women's organization now. And that's kind of where all my energy is going. So yeah, I'll do a blue party again. I'm not against doing it again. It's just, it's kind of, you know, sometimes you want to try new things. And I did this for a very long time. (laughs) For sure. And we'll, we'll jump on to change the beat in a moment. I'm really interested with the 
with the parties because these are some of the biggest names in house music what so essentially yeah. for you sydney blue as the promoter all of a sudden clearly a lady of many talents what did you learn from doing the parties well i used to throw my own parties back many years ago when I was a local DJ in Toronto. So I already was kind of used, I did my own Thursday night. Not that that was even close to um, what it was like to throw international DJs because it's not the same thing, right? Um, Basically you're doing a totally different level of event with dealing with agents and stuff. But ultimately, you know, I got my first, um, I got my first experience throwing events when I was younger in, as a local. And so I was pretty confident that I'd be fine. And you know what? The thing about it is, is I didn't even hesitate. I did my first event and that was so long ago. That was like 2009 or whatever. And it went great. And then I did another one and then, you know, you just build your confidence as you go. Um, and you learn all the ins and outs of it and you run into problems and you learn how to fix them as you go. Um, there's no real school for it, you know, but I think it came naturally to me throwing the events. I think I was pretty good at it. I learned pretty early on in my music career that I didn't like throwing my own events. No. I used to run a few disco parties in, in London. Did did a lot actually as a youngster, but it got to a certain point when I was running events with friends and we do we do one with zero promotion and just resident DJs and it would go amazingly. And then we'd do another one with a headline guest and lots of promotion and it would just completely flop. It was always challenging in London, but I think it's challenging anywhere. Yeah, it is challenging. Yeah, let's talk about Change the Beat because clearly you're you're really innovative. You've got lots of ideas and, you know, you're, it seems to be, I'd probably say a go-getter, you know, you're someone who really goes, seems to have an idea and then you just go and get it done. What's it all about? What's the ethos and what are you up to right now? I started a campaign, which just recently turned into a nonprofit called Change the Beat back in 2008. 21. And it was called 23 by 23 at the time. The uh, concept around it was let's try to equalize the record labels because the record labels in electronic music still had less than two to 5% of women on them. And I just, I was asked to do an article for Mix Mag and then something for Beatport where I talked about how the industry could equalize better and where women were still not being represented in electronic music. And I just thought there was so much discussion around DJ lineups and nobody was talking about the production space Um, in women in music production are constantly left out of the, out of the, the space. And it's really bizarre. Now women are getting signed more and more and the, it seems like the percentage is going up. I'm not exactly sure what it's at right now, but it's still a very low percentage. So I wanted to do something where we could talk about it and have a healthy discussion around it. So we started a campaign and we had like a public awareness campaign where we talked about all of this in um, a press release. It went out in uh, Mix Mag and DJ Mag Resident Advisor. We started by doing a remix contest with Tool Room. We did a live stream. We did um, a couple mentoring talks online, workshops where we discussed um, sexual harassment. We talked about how to submit a demo and we had like 
a great live stream of all great women um, that were like ambassadors of the campaign and partnered with LPGOB's Femhouse. Um, and like I said, we ran this remix contest with Tool Room. Maxine was the artist remixed. We had over 50 women enter the remix contest and Native Instruments was sponsoring us. So we basically decided to keep the remix contest going and we kept them going and we started running a remix contest once a month. And then we signed more women. Uh, we would have the women that won the contest get signed. They would win big prizes from Native Instruments. And then we decided to keep the contest going because that was how we were solving the problem with that we were talking about was we were signing uh, women trans and non-binary artists to record labels. And um, yeah, like it was so successful over the course of the last two years, we've signed over 55 women through the program. And um We've worked with record labels like Hishi, they Insomniac and Juna Deep and Juna Beats, Tool Room, Club Sweat, Rothentic Music, Hospital Records. I mean, a lot of record labels, Realms, uh, Gorgon City's record label, uh, Circus Recordings, Desert Hearts. It's been so successful. And so out of the program, we decided to change it to a permanent nonprofit because we didn't want to stop 23 by 23, obviously had a deadline, a date that was supposed to end in at the end of 2023. We're almost there. So we wanted to change it to something permanent. And so we decided to call it change the beat. It took us a while to even find that name. <laughs> and uh, we finally were like, okay, let's call it change the beat. And, uh, we ended up getting awarded the Beatport Parity Prize recently, which is a, a diversity fund um, that Beatport helps support. And yeah, it, it's it's been great. I don't want to stop and I want to keep going and I want to expand. And we're going to start expanding the organization into an educational chapter and an events chapter. We're going to start doing showcases with some of our artists remix, some of our alumni. And uh, also we're going to do workshops around those showcases. So, and because I have experience throwing events, I'm pretty excited about doing all that. And yeah, that's it. We run monthly remix contests every month with uh and we have a, a community on discord and it's great so yeah a safe space space for women to help each other out and get into production is what it is fantastic i love to find ways to collaborate with open door because we bring together musicians music makers singers songwriters and producers to make music together to connect to yeah and collaborate and uh, i'm sure there's ways that we can work together because it's a fantastic project how can people get involved in and find out more well um you can join our discord which is just change the beat on discord um you can follow us on social media most of the tags are change the beat official so definitely follow us on the socials enter our contests if you want to get signed if you're a female trans or non-binary artist or you know a female trans or non-binary artist we run these remix contests monthly and they're all on label radar so label radar is a great um website and yeah it's a great way to enter contests so through that that website yeah Great. And we'll certainly link all of the information in the description of the podcast. Thank you. I would love to talk to you about Sydney Blue, the DJ, because you are clearly a very experienced DJ. First of all, how would you say the role of a DJ has changed over 
the years since you started DJing? Well, there's way more marketing involved, I think, because of social media. I don't think you are a DJ anymore. If you want to be a successful internationally known artist, you have to be an entrepreneur. So you have to understand how marketing. It's so important. Um, you have to understand social media. You have to understand um, how to market yourself. You have to understand graphic design sometimes. You have to understand um, how to make little videos, <laughs> how to make reels. Like there's so many things to learn. How to engage your audience, how to um, do mailers, MailChimp. Those are important too, even just off social media. So, you know, it's not just about DJing. Um, DJing, I guess it's important to have a sound uh, and go in a certain direction. Some people have a specific sound where they have like zeroed in on, I am a techno DJ and that's it. And this is my look, this is my sound, whatever. And then other artists like me are more versatile, but I still have a hypnotic, darker kind of sound, like you said. So I think it's important to have some sort of a idea of what, what you're going to be, what you're going to be sounding like. In terms of those, say, more entrepreneurial aspects of the, being a DJ, how did you learn those things? Because it's easy to get overwhelmed. You know, MailChimp, graphic design, TikTok videos. You know, how did you learn to do these things? I listened to a lot of podcasts and I listened to, I watched, you know, marketing videos on YouTube and stuff like that. And so I learned like, you know, little, little key things. Like <clears throat> I've only just, by the way, learned MailChimp this year. <laughs> so it's like mm -hmm. always a learning curve, right? You have to constantly be learning and picking up new trends. One of the things I learned, for example, by listening to various podcasts was social media. If Facebook goes down, you've lost all your followers. If Instagram goes down, you've just lost your entire audience. Building your own audience that you own is really important and having a direct contact with them because the algorithms, you know, mood unfortunately determines how many people see your content. So, um, having a direct line to your fans, you know, and there's different ways to do that. Patreon's one, your broadcast channel subscription to, you know, there's sub sub clubs now on Instagram where you could subscribe to an artist that you follow or vice and, or you can be an artist that accepts subscriptions. Um, MailChimp is another, you know, I think that there's different ways you can have a direct line to your audience. And I think that's important on top of social media. What is your approach with social media? Do you, do you plan it out? Is it more ad hoc? I have notes that I make for my week of stuff that I want to get out to the, to the world. I basically uh, sometimes have a social media schedule for change the beat. We have a, a calendar, a social media calendar with different stuff to post every day. So yeah, it's, I think it's important to have some sort of a social media schedule for sure and change it up. Don't just do one, thing, you know? Yeah. Or what would you advise someone who, you know, who's struggling in that, in that area uh, you know, they've got a great sound, you know, they're really confident in the DJ side of things or the artistry side, but they don't feel so confident on socials. What would be one bit of advice that you can give to them? 
watch content creators that do that well on social on youtube like graham farmer is a prime example of somebody who's gives great advice from data transmission graham he has an amazing channel on youtube where he talks about how to uh go on social media as an artist, especially if you don't feel comfortable and you don't have the confidence. Like he talks about that all the time. If you find creators like that, that are constantly giving advice for this specific thing and then do those things, you're fine. Those, I think that's the best thing to do. Yeah. I agree. Graham's a Graham. He, he puts out some great content and he's a great guy as well. He's good. Yeah. What hobbies and passions do you have outside of music and how do you think that these influence your creative process? I don't have much of a life right now outside of music. Um, <laughs> I, I love my friends. I have great friends, but they're also music lovers. So I, I mean, it all kind of comes back to the music. I think that, you know, I hang out with my dog. He's a sweetie. I love animals. I love yoga. I love going for long walks. Mm. I like my solitude. I like you know, taking time and space and healing. I love being in nature. I'm from a very small town in Canada. So very nature filled city in the middle of nowhere. So I like going out into nature and just kind of like zoning out. Yeah. Family and friends time, I think is really important. Um, having that balance. I'm, I'm really into exercising and yoga, um, meditation, those are just basic little things, but outside, I mean, I'm really dialed into my, my career. It's pretty much my 24 hour job. <laughs> yeah. So I think uh, choosing a, a career in music is often committing your whole life to it. Yeah. How do you maintain a balance? I just have, I try to take the evenings for myself. It's hard. I'm not the kind of person that can just go, all day and all night. Like I usually just stop if I work all day, especially if I'm like doing I, I, like, if I'm going to make music, I usually do it when I first wake up. That's why I like doing it on the weekends because it's really challenging for me to say work from like nine to five. And then at five o'clock start working on music. Like my brain is dead by that point at five o'clock. If I've just worked for that whole time, I'm going to go for a really long walk around the neighborhood into the park, you know? So that's kind of what I do. Then I'll go to the grocery store, I'll get some food, and then I come home and I'll chill out, you know, I'll watch some shows, I'll just chill out with my dog, you know, go to bed early. Um, that's what I want to do. I just want to have an evening to myself, quiet, you know, relax. And that's how I would be really charged up for the next day. Otherwise, if I'm just like working and brain dead and sitting at it, staring at a screen for like the whole day and night, then I'll be burnt out all the time so obviously as musicians as you know as artists there's an ongoing quest for mastery in our pursuit as musicians and, and artists uh, and there's often one element that we all strive for what is the element that you strive for in your music and what steps have you taken to hone your skills in my music that i release like the songs i just want them to be really good and like be a accepted by either my audience or my record label, or I just want the music that I'm putting out to be receptive to my audience. And 
I don't want to specifically have any specific sound. I just want my audience to appreciate that I, I am very versatile and I like different kinds of music, whether it's like I'm playing deep house or I'm playing more melodic techno or whatever. I just want my audience to know that I'm going to be versatile. And when I put that set together, even if I'm playing five genres of music, it's all going to flow and people get me for that, you know? What do you do when your music doesn't do as well as you might expect it to? I move on because <laughs> it doesn't really always, you know, not every song that you think is going to really hit hits. And like, that's the thing is like a lot of it is subject to like, who's running the Spotify playlists right now, or, you know, DJs buying your tracks on Bport. Like sometimes it's also subject to that because Bport is only other DJs buying your songs. So it really depends on what people are vibing at that time um so we're just coming to the end of the interview i've got a couple more questions left sydney but first of all i just want to say thank you so much for spending so much time with us and imparting so much wisdom before we wrap up can you share three top tips for independent musicians singers songwriters and producers three tips for independent musicians um i would say Work smart, not hard. Don't overexhaust yourself doing things, some, the same thing over and over. It's, if it's not working, zoom in, zoom out. Try to like look at everything you're doing, readjust, and be good at pivoting if you need to. That is really important. So, you know, always be um, open to pivoting. So that's one piece of advice. Um, maintain a work-life balance which you should always like try to be healthy, eat well, don't party too much. <laughs> um, don't drink too much. Um, you know, like try to keep it professional. You're in a business. You're not, it's like people will take you way more seriously if you take yourself seriously. And yeah, just try to do things right. Like, and like I said earlier, if you're going to do something, try to do it right. Don't do things half-ass. <laughs> I don't like doing anything half-ass. Can you share one piece of valuable advice or wisdom or maybe a mantra that, that has guided you on your journey in your music career? Hmm. <sighs> That's a good question. Um, some different things are coming to mind. It can be more than one. Well, I mean, like I said earlier, one of the things that Denmark sa said to me was, you know, be self-sufficient. Don't necessarily rely on other people. Try to get them to rely on you. It's way, way easier that way. <laughs> I thought that was great advice. I also think it's important to, I don't know who, pe various people have told me over the course of my career to, you know, try to have a sound. I think that's important too. And always be open to feedback. Don't necessarily take offense to, you know, feedback. I think that always getting better and knowing that you can do better. Ego is the enemy. <laughs> um, don't let your ego get out of control. Just because, you know, you have some wins. Always treat people with respect. Fantastic. What a great way to finish. Sydney Blue, thank you so much for joining us here on the Open Door Talks podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Open Door Talks today. If you enjoyed this episode, please spread the love and share it with a friend. We've also got a Spotify playlist 
featuring the music from the podcast. So make sure you check that out and head to opendoortalks.com for more information and resources.